0: All right, we're going to read from God's Word in just a moment. At City we believe that the Bible is God's Word, and as it's read and taught faithfully, it's God speaking to us. And so we're going to open up to Acts chapter 6, and that will come up on the screens for you. We're going to read from sentences 1 to 7, tracking the story of the early church in the book of Acts. Acts 6, sentence 1. Now, in these days... But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, they set these before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God.
1: Hey, everyone. Great to be with you. Great to see you as well. A bunch of new faces. If you are here for the first time, we just really love um, having you today with whatever's brought you along. Hopefully, today is going to be really helpful, uh, particularly if you're someone who's exploring faith, exploring questions. Um, yeah, we just hope you are really welcomed and and loved today. My name's Jacob, if we haven't met before, and we're going to be spending some time in those verses that Jez just read for us, so if you've got your Bibles open, you can leave them open to Acts 6, or even if you haven't got them open yet and you're realizing you're really struggling to see the screen, which we're still waiting to get fixed, you could open that up on a phone. If you type in Acts chapter 6, verse 1-7 into Google, you'll have it in front of you as well. But how about we just start by praying? Um, before we get into God's word, we want this to be a time which is um, actually a, a chance to hear God speak to us through His word. And so we're just going to pray and just ask that God would be doing that. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just ask as we open your word now and as we um, just consider this account of the early church, just that this would be an opportunity to see your heart and to see what matters to you um, and to help us. Think through how we can be people who are loving and effective in our world. Um, that your church today would be growing in, in the way that it was 2,000 years ago. So we just pray be with us in this time. Amen. I want to start by telling uh, just the story of, of two different churches. Bread of Life Church was a small church of about 40 mostly elderly members meeting in their hall in the inner suburbs of Sydney when it hired Pat as their new pastor. The church had been in decline for a few years, and Pat wanted to find a way to connect this church back into the city and see it grow again. There was a significant homeless population nearby the church, and so Pat thought, I wonder if there's anything we can be doing for these people. He knew that Jesus spent his ministry life drawing near to the poor and the marginalized, and he knew that the church would have a heart for the needy. So he just decided to try something and he said and thought, well, let's put on like a bacon and egg roll breakfast just for the homeless people in the area. So he went around the street, let people know uh, that on Saturday morning the church would be putting on a barbecue with some bacon and eggs and they should come by. And he got a couple of volunteers from his church who had the, had the morning free. They fired up the barbie. And on the first week, a few people came along, about five. Um, but they enjoyed it and they asked if it would be happening again the next week. And so Pat said, okay, let's do it again. And next week, there was even more. The third week it exploded and about 50 people came along for breakfast which made Pat realize he was onto something, there was a real need here. Um, So it continued to happen, he he decided he'd run it every single week but it was getting harder and harder to find volunteers. Most of the church uh, members, most of the members in his church weren't as excited about giving up their Saturday morning every single week as Pat was. And so he struggled to get enough volunteers to run the barbecue. So he ended up putting a sign up at the local library asking if anyone else had time on a Saturday morning. And a few people did. About four people came along. A bit of a mix, mixed bag, but um, not Christians, but just lovely people who wanted to help. And so it continued. It continued happening week in, week out. And it even grew. They decided they could actually pull this off three mornings a week. But most of Pat's week ended up becoming trying to find enough volunteers, enough, enough food, enough resources to run this thing. And at the same time, the church was getting a bit discouraged. They were feeling and noticing that Pat wasn't putting as much time into his sermons, that, that he was even getting frustrated at them for not being as keen on this project as he was, um, and they felt like their spiritual needs weren't being met. And so one by one, people moved away, and the church declined. And less people in the church meant there was less money to go into this homeless ministry, and so Pat ended up going to the local council asking for, some, for a grant to keep this thing running, and they said that they would happily provide that as long as he his, his, his set up how he was running his breakfast as a, as a charity. So he did that as well. And over the years, the charity continued to grow and the church continued to dwindle. And after a number of years, something happened in Pat's family where he had to go back uh, and move back to his home city. And he handed leadership of the charity over to one of the other volunteers. But the church just dwindled now to a very small few. Who couldn't afford to hire another pastor or keep paying for the upkeep of their building. So the charity took over as a place to keep running food. And the building remains, the charity remains, but the church is no longer there. St. Peter's, though, was a very different church. It was led by Greg, and Greg loved the scriptures. He had an oversized leather Bible that went wherever he went, and he lived to preach. He spent all his days sitting up in his study with his commentaries, looking into Greek and Hebrew words, thinking about how that Sunday, yet again, he'd be able to speak with freshness and vigor and call upon his listeners to repent, to receive forgiveness, and to live holy lives of gratitude. And he did this week in, week out, despite the fact that his entire congregation had repented and received forgiveness many years ago, and it was a very, very rare occasion that any new person would trickle through the door. One of his church members, Hannah, came to him one day and suggested because they weren't really growing, they should try something new. She knew that some, some uh, refugees had recently moved into the area. And so she said, Look, Why don't I get some people together from the church? We can organize some hampers of just things that they need, as well as a nice little card, just to let them know that they're noticed and loved, and that might help connect them with the church. Greg told her that that was a nice idea, but he reminded her that hampers can't save souls, that what these people need is the gospel. And so rather, if we've got time and energy to spare, rather than wasting it making hampers, Hannah helped him run a Christianity Explored course. They put up a big sign people in, and prayed. Hannah felt a bit quashed and discouraged that her idea was knocked back, but she wanted to do something, so she agreed to help run Christianity Explored. The day came and went, and no one came. But Greg reminded his team that they'd done all they could, and it's up to God to send the growth. One day, a single mother named Susan came and knocked on the door of Greg's church, and he answered, And she'd been really struggling with the cost of living. And she was out of options. She was too nervous to really tell her friends or her family what she was going through. But she thought, look, if there's one place she could turn, maybe it was the church. So she came and knocked and Greg answered. And Greg saw this opportunity. And so he said, look, we'd love to help you. If you'd be willing to attend our Christianity Explored course, then afterwards we could give you a $100 Woolworths voucher. And so Susan went away feeling gross and humiliated by the whole thing. Come Christmas, Greg was preparing to preach on his Christmas week, the biggest week of his year, he was going to preach the gospel like he'd never preached it before. And he wanted the whole suburb to know about it, so he put up some signs and flyers, and he put up a sign in the local school. And a group of moms saw the sign advertising Greg's Christmas service one day, and amazingly, one of them actually said, you know what, I've been thinking about going to a church. I used to go when I was young, and I feel like something's missing in my life, and maybe this is the time to reconnect. But Susan was one of the mums in the group and she remembered the time that she had asked for help from the church. So she said, look, just don't go to that one. They don't actually care about you. They'll just sign you up to a course. When no one from the school came that Christmas, Greg comforted himself that there was nothing more he could have done. Now both of those churches are made up. Um, and so if you know a Greg who runs at St. Peter's, it's not him because I just tried to pick, pick something out randomly there. Pure coincidence. But although the stories are made up, they're, they're not hard to imagine. There, there's, there's, there's plenty of churches that have gone those two ways. Plenty of charities and church buildings that exist where the church has long since died off. And plenty of churches committed to preaching the gospel which just aren't known in their communities as a place of real love and kindness and help. And it's just it just highlights the different ways that church can think through, I guess, these two In a sense, callings or ways a church could engage with the world. Preaching the gospel or or evangelism, if you want a Christian word for it. And doing justice. Attending to the spiritual needs that people have and attending to the physical needs that people have. And it seems that many churches end up leaning into one or the other. This is a really important thing for a church to navigate. And I really believe that the actual future of the church depends on us thinking through this issue well and navigating it well. Which is it going to be? Is it going to be a church that is only about preaching the gospel and helping people know this person of Jesus or a church that is, is radically committed to loving the poor and addressing the needs around them? We're looking in the book of Acts today about how the early church 2,000 years ago navigated this issue. And where they land is to borrow the words from the girl from the old El Paso ad, "Porque no los dos? Why can't we have both? And so it's a pretty simple idea where we're going today. There's nothing going to be super groundbreaking in this, but I think it's just so critical to understand what we see in the book of Acts is that a healthy church both teaches the word, preaches the gospel, and cares about justice and mercy. So let's look in the book of Acts at how the the church there navigates this issue. If you haven't been with us so far in the book of Acts, we've been tracking the early church from the time of Jesus as it begins to grow, and it has grown amazingly. The church has gone from dozens to thousands in a matter of months. And those join in the mix are a mix of ethnicities, of backgrounds, uh, and of wealth. There are people who are joining who are wealthy landowners, and there are people who are coming in who have got disabilities or are widows or are even slaves. And the practice that the church has adopted and we've seen this twice now already in the book of Acts, is that the rich people, those that have more than they need, would sell up property, bring the money to the apostles, the leaders of the church, and then that would get distributed to those who are in need. And it's in that context that a problem arises that we're looking at today. Look in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what we're seeing going on here is on, on one level a, a logistical issue that's come up. People are getting everyday stuff distributed to them probably in the form of food which is obviously perishable and would have to be regular as opposed to money. And if you've ever had to cater for a large group of people you realize that's not an easy thing to do. And if you don't have spreadsheets or fridges, it's even harder. And so in this chaos of a growing church, you'd expect there to be some people to be missed, and you'd expect there to be a bit of a mess. But what's happening here is also deeper than a logistical issue. It's a race and a justice issue. At this point in the church's life, most of the converts to Christianity, to the way of Jesus, came from a Jewish background. But there were, broadly speaking, two types of Jews each with their own identity. There were the Hellenists, that is Greek-speaking Jews, either because they're people who have converted to Judaism or because they're Jews living in another part of the ex-Greek empire around the Mediterranean where Greek was the common language spoken. And then there's the Hebrews, the the born and bred Jerusalemites who speak Hebrew and maybe even felt like they were the kind of authentic, legitimate Jewish people. And the complaint that's come up is that the Hellenists aren't getting treated fairly. They're not getting the same amount of stuff given to them as these Hebrew widows. And whether that's an intentional malicious thing or even a subtle accidental thing it's it's hurtful either way because being intentionally deprived of something because of your background or just being ignored or overlooked or missed because of your background is both hurtful. And it it begins making these cracks of disunity within the church. The Hellenists say, this isn't right. It's not right that we're being treated differently. And all of this put together is is a recipe for disaster for the church. It's got all the ingredients needed to destroy the church. It could form a a permanent rift, schism and and break between these two groups of Christians who just can't get along and feel hurt and, and frustrated with each other. Or it could cause disillusionment as converts to Christianity see, look, I thought this was this really nice, great, amazing movement of God, but it turns out in reality, it's just a bunch of messy, discriminatory racists. Or it could ruin the church's reputation to the outside world as people look in, see this infighting, see this dysfunction, and then say to themselves, look, this this movement couldn't even last a year without collapsing into a heap. So it's got the potential to destroy the church, But even if it doesn't destroy the church, what's going on here has the potential just to sideline it. If you've ever been a part of an organization or a a group or in your workplace that have been going through a time of conflict and disunity and mess in a time of rapid growth and change, you'll realize that when something like that is going on, all of the available effort and energy can get sucked into solving that issue that whatever the organization or the group is meant to be doing can get lost as it, as it tries to solve this. So what we see is actually a, a problem that's going to require some real wisdom to solve. And so what we're going to be looking at is how the church leaders respond. And, and really, they respond in two parts. There's around two halves of their response. And the first half of their response is keeping the main thing the main thing. It's the issue of the church being sidelined that the apostles first speak into. And this is what we see in verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, so they gathered the whole church, and they say to them, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, on first reading, as you see their response to saying, Look, there's this issue. These widows, they're hungry, they're not getting enough food. It's, we're not going to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That can sound a little bit almost callous. It's a bit of like a, a Greg comment. I'm sorry if your name's Greg. That's just from the illustration. But it can sound a bit like Are they saying that looking after the poor is beneath them? That this is like too humble a job for the likes of us? I don't think that's the best way to read what they're saying here. And there's a few reasons for that. These apostles have just spent years walking around with Jesus, who mingled with the poor and the marginalized. They've written letters that we have in the Bible today, and in those letters, again and again and again, they speak of the importance of every christian having a care for the poor and putting their money where their mouth is regarding caring for the poor and for the most part they're even just poor themselves they're from like a a lower class fisherman background so they're not saying it's below them but what they're saying is that the task that they have got to do as leaders is a unique one that they they've sent out 12 from jesus have been entrusted with the word of god and have been sent by Jesus to make disciples and to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is the central purpose and calling. And they recognize that if they commit themselves to get stuck in to resolving this issue personally and managing this, something will have to give. And if the thing that gives is the word of God going out, then that is a huge loss for the kingdom. And the reason for this is that the gospel is the best thing that the church has to offer a needy world. The message of salvation is the greatest gift the church has to give. The only way for someone to come to know the truth that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die, that anyone who believes in him can receive forgiveness and eternal life, The only way to to know that idea or to come to a belief in that idea is to hear it. To hear it formulated or spoken, taught, explained, defended, illustrated, summarized, paraphrased. They need to get this message out. The way to experience life and life to the full is through being the recipient of a message. A message that can heal souls and open relationship to God. And they recognize that this is more important than being fed. Now that is a really controversial statement and I'm aware of it as I say it because it can feel like, and maybe on a gut level, it feels like maybe the opposite is true. That our physical needs are somehow more real than our spiritual needs. That the part of us that longs to be fed and satisfied is somehow more real or more important than the part of us that longs for meaning and joy and connection but within a christian worldview if you think about what it is that we believe as christians it's it's obvious that hearing the gospel is the most important thing tim keller was an amazing pastor writer and teacher who who sadly passed away yesterday in the early hours of the morning and he was someone who gave his whole life both to the pursuit of getting the gospel out, in pastoring a church in New York for decades, as well as starting a church planning network that, that started thousands of churches. But he's also someone who was radically committed to the poor and to the marginalized, starting multiple charities in New York and writing two books on the topic of how the church should be empowered to love those around them. And in his book, Generous Justice, which is all about how it is that the church should commit itself to the poor and the marginalized, he says in it that despite how important it is that even justice doesn't trump evangelism. Here's what he says. He says evangelism is the most basic and radical ministry possible to a human being. This is true not because the spiritual is more important than the physical, but because the eternal is more important than the temporal. If there is a God, and if life with him for eternity is based on having a saving relationship with him, then the most loving thing anyone can do for one's neighbor is help him or her to a saving faith in that God. Now, i the logic, if eternity is on the line, infinite knowing of the God who made you and loved you or infinite not experiencing that, then what could be more important than people hearing this message? This is the unique offering that the church has. This is the church's core business is to get this message out. This message that can save. Any good, nice, caring, loving person can feed the poor. But this is something that only the followers of Jesus can do. To get the words of eternal life into people. And in their wisdom, these 12 apostles who are leading the church this time recognize this. And they recognize that as the church grows and as opportunities increase, needs increase, complexities increase, that they must keep the main thing the main thing that they can't be sidelined because losing the main thing has been the downfall of many organizations. I read a book a few months ago that was called uh, Lights Out Pride Delusion and the Fall of General Electric and it was pretty, in fact it was even semi-boring read I don't even know exactly why I did it but it told the story of how General Electric the company went from being the biggest company in the world for most of the last hundred years to fading into relative obscurity. And if you don't know the story, that's why I guess you would read the book. Is it's about, um, so founded by Thomas Edison, who invented a little something called electricity. Um, or technically, he found out how to put electricity into a light bulb, which he also invented. And this was something that was pretty groundbreaking because everyone was so sick of being in the dark all the time. And so his idea just took off. He, people wanted lights in their houses, and so he started the company, General Electric, which had a pretty simple mission to get people lights in their houses. So they made lights, they also made street lamps, transition lines, distribution networks and power plants to electrify a world in darkness. And as you can imagine, that was a pretty profitable thing to do. They, it, it grew went gangbusters. But over time, as they had for the most part completed their main mission, General Electric really just branched out into absolutely everything. They started making camera equipment, medical equipment, aeroplane parts and even started a bunch of finance stuff trying to run themselves like a bank. And as that happened, as it grew and as it spread itself out, it it just became a mess. These different divisions were fighting over resources, they were infighting, inflating their numbers, kind of not working together, and the whole thing just collapsed. Many churches have collapsed in the same way, where they've gone from being about something central and important, the sharing of the gospel, to being about any number of other passion projects, interests, whatever it is where it's just been a group of people all wanting to go their own separate way, which has caused it to fall apart. When the church loses its focus, it can become about everything. But when it becomes about everything, it ultimately becomes about nothing. And the leaders of the church in Acts realize that, and that's why they say what they do, that we must keep the preaching of the gospel the main thing. So that's the first part of their response. That's not all they do. There's a second half of what they say. They don't say, look, okay, enough's enough. This is getting messy. This is getting too distracting. We're cancelling the widow program. We're done. We're going back just to preaching. Sorry, widows, no more. That's not what he does. Look at what happens in verse 3. They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a tide of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. What happens in these verses shows just how important the early church thought it was to have their social justice work and their social justice ministry functioning. They, they'd say, look, we need a team of people to run this. And it's not just any people, any random people who just put their hand up. They say, no, pick, pick the best. Get some, some quality people who are wise, reputable, spirit-filled, who will be able to manage this and to manage this well. And then beyond that even, from the names, which for us aren't super obvious, but these are all Greek names, that these people who are running this ministry not only are able to do it, but they actually care about these Hellenist widows on a deep personal level because they are Hellenists themselves. So they're, they're going to make sure these widows aren't overlooked. And the church is happy with this outcome. And the point here is that caring for widows in this particular instance isn't this peripheral, side-disposable part of the church. It's not an issue you can take or leave, but it's central to the mission of the church. And so they, they allocate substantial resources to it. One of the, we only know well one of the names mentioned, but the first name that's mentioned is Stephen, who we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks here at church who is a really high caliber guy. He's an amazing preacher. He's extremely bold. And we're going to be seeing that. But he's put to work not interestingly enough in the work of preaching but in the work of caring for widows. Which shows this is important. They're putting substantial resource into it. And it's important because justice is important to God. You can't really turn a page or two in the Old Testament which is most of the Bible without seeing God speaking his care for the marginalized, for the foreigner, for the orphan, for the widow, for the poor, for those who aren't treated justly. Jesus taught that the way you treat the poor is how you treat God. That generosity to those in need is the main mark you can look for on the outside of a person to, de- to determine whether something internal is going on as to whether they would understood the gospel. Jesus' ministry, if you read the Gospels, was kind of like one for one. He would do something to alleviate some suffering and help someone, then he'd preach a sermon. Then he'd help someone again, then he'd preach. Then he'd help someone, then he'd preach. It was kind of split down between these two things. It's central to the mission of the church. And sometimes you can hear the kind of thought that Christians Christians that care about social justice and, and, and... Reaching into the marginalized, that kind of thing, that's that's for progressive types of Christians. And I don't really know what the best word is for doing something the church has been doing for 2,000 straight years, but I don't think progressive is the right word for it. Preaching must be, and, and sharing the gospel, not just like up here preaching, but going to people and sharing the gospel with them needs to be central to the church's mission. But doing justice is indispensable. And so they do both. And we get to see what happens by this decision that they've made and how they've navigated this. And it's in verse 7. It says the result of this is, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the going out of the word of God is maintained. The widows are cared for and fed. And as a way of, I guess, just showing that God was happy with the outcome of this, of how they've, how they've worked through it, and that God has even at work through that decision, it says the church continues to grow. And I think the point you can read into this is that if you had lost either of those things, this growth was going to be impacted. That losing either doesn't work. That the kingdom going forward into the world will be marked by the faithful, consistent preaching and sharing of the gospel as well as a deep care and an alleviation of suffering and care for the marginalized. Now, that's not to say they're the same thing, just that they go together, because social justice isn't evangelism. Salvation comes through hearing a message. And it's also not to say that like, caring about the poor and doing justice is a means to an end, because it's not just a tactic or a strategy to get disciples. It's an overflow of our understanding of the gospel that we've received much, we would give much. But it just so happens that there really is, I think you can kind of see this to be true in your own lives and the people that you know, there's no real better primer for a person to to gain an openness to the gospel or even an interest in the gospel than to experience firsthand or even witness in someone else a church in action bringing about healing, restoration and justice in a broken world. I think it's an active commitment to justice and mercy, which are the tracks upon which the train of the gospel can travel freely straight into the hearts of the lost. And so for us, City Light, to be a healthy, growing church, which we keep saying that's what we want to be, we need to have an unwavering commitment to the gospel message and a deep core foundational belief that that message is the best thing we've got to offer this world, but not at the expense of being radically, sacrificially, and intentionally committed to acts of mercy and justice. Because there are close ties between the two. They go together. And often when when those things go together in in a person's life, that is where the gospel can start to to take root. I want to move towards finishing this by telling you another story and this one is not a made-up story this is a, a true story and it's about a guy named jess for a number of years here at city light we ran a ministry called hands and feet which in which a van of fresh produce would come to our church building on a monday it would get unloaded and then some volunteers from here at church would just be there to help serve this food to people in the area who needed a bit of extra help and we'd also put on tea and coffee and biscuits and people could sit around and chat. Um, and that was just born out of a desire to, to do something and a realization that there was there are 500 social housing dwellings on the Balmain peninsula as wealthy as Balmain feels a lot of the time. And so people would come along. And the first week that Jess came, he didn't stick around. He he got off a bus heading towards Victoria Road, came in, got a box of food, went back outside, got on the bus back the other direction in, in about a 7 minute 7 minutes flat. Um, And he did that for a few weeks. He he came along because one of his neighbors had let him know that there was free food available up at the church. But uh, a few weeks in, he he stuck around and he sat outside um, on the steps of the church building up there, if you know the one, and and was rolling a cigarette because maybe he missed his bus or he was just deciding to stick around. And I got to sit down and have a bit of a chat with him. And he was pretty forthcoming that he was an atheist that he really did believe that Christianity was a blight on the world. It was a crutch for the stupid and a cover for hypocrisy. And I think he was looking for a reaction, but whether I had like disgrace or I was tired, I, I didn't give him one. Um, and so he just, was you know, th- there was no great defense man. And he tried this with a few of the volunteers, just trying to provoke some kind of reaction and, and just didn't, didn't get it week after week. So each week it's he'd come back, try to start an argument, but, but slowly he'd also just start talking about other stuff. The music he was intro- into... The, um, the literature he read, and he also started opening up a bit and shared that his dad had been a religious man, but also a really hypocritical man and a harsh man, and he'd seen the ugly side of Christianity up front and wanted nothing to do with it. And it didn't seem like Jesse. just was an older guy. He had a grey beard, wore like a, a green Um, army hat with a red communist star and like he'd, he'd, he'd lived a life and been he'd thought what he thought for a long time and so to be honest I didn't think much was likely to change for Jess but over time Jess actually started to soften in 2017 I got a text from Jess that really surprised me he said just want to say again that I'm grateful and appreciate the work you and City Light Church does that you don't use your good works as an opportunity to proselytize the vulnerable your kindness and intelligent, open-minded company count more for more than the food. Many of us hide our loneliness behind pride. On behalf of us all, please pass this on to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Cheers, Jess, in brackets, still an atheist, in brackets, grins. <laughs> now, Jess kept coming along, and after a couple of years of serving food, those of us who were volunteering thought, look, there's actually people here who want to explore faith, and so maybe what we could do is we'll start running Christian Explored and a Bible study before the food. Anyone who just wants to come early, they will not feel any pressure to get the food and stick around and do it because it's just if they choose to come early, they can do the Bible study and then up to them if they want to do that or not. And we threw this out to, to people there. And then I got a message from Jess again as he'd reflected on this. And he said, I'm interested in an advanced Bible study group, one that looks at the big picture, not just cherry picking the nice bits. City Light Church are the kind of Christians Christians should be. Living goodness, intelligent, informed, not just dogma. Would you consider including me in such a group if it exists? I feel lost and would appreciate your prayers even if I don't believe in them. Much love and gratitude, Jess. Now Jess ended up attending this Bible study on and off for about a year and even came along to church a a few times. He was up and down. Sometimes he'd disappear for weeks on end. Um, he had various addictions. Sometimes he'd be mad and cut loose about how unpalatable he found certain aspects of Christianity and the things that we believed. But then at other times, he'd be sharing with, with, with a few of us he, that he wanted to have a faith. He just felt like he couldn't have it. He wanted to understand grace, but he couldn't connect the dots. He kept coming, came to church. He attended m- meals at, at Ann and Steve's house. Uh, he came to our end-of-year Christmas dinners which we um, which would mention, the Christmas story and the gospel ad as well. And at the beginning of 2020, Jess unexpectedly passed away. And I don't know exactly what Jess believed at the end of his life, um, whether or not he would had a relationship with God, or what, if any, his prayers would consist of. But it was a sad, a sad moment. And Steve, who, who's here, who had who'd become really close to Jess, Reached out to Jess's sisters and asked if there's anything we can do as a church, and they suggested his sisters that his memorial be at City Light because Jess had referred to a few of them as being his church, even though he was an atheist. And so we did that. We had the memorial at church, and it meant that dozens of people who would never step into a church came to this memorial, and were able to hear the message of grace that a couple of people got to share. But to hear it not just as this abstract thing, but something that was intimately connected with loving loving Jess. And one of his neighbors who came to the funeral um, shared that in the weeks before his death, Jess had said to her that he was finally ready to commit to church. And I don't know exactly what that means or what he was thinking or what was going on for him. I hope that it means that God had finally broken through into his life. But I'd just tell you this story to show that it's not as simple as splitting out sharing the gospel and and, and attending to people's needs, that these things are intricately intertwined. And we want to be a church that is increasingly having an impact on the world around us. We want people to know the gospel and we want people's world just to experience the first-hand physical expressions of love that comes from knowing what Jesus has done for us. And we need to be a church that's committed to both these things, not one at the expense of the other, but to be deeply desiring to do both. And both these things, sharing the gospel with people and, and, and caring for the needs around us, both of these start in the everyday. These aren't, the answer to this isn't run a program for either of them. It's just being, having eyes open and intentional with noticing around you, noticing, like Jess shared before, about having a co-worker who's, who's looking into things and ready to ask some big questions. It's, it's being attentive in when you're catching up for a, a coffee or a beer with someone and to what people are saying. Are they actually, leading, they're actually asking you to maybe speak into that and, and get the conversation a bit deeper, which we often find so hard to do. And with justice, it's often looking at the needs around us. It's noticing the person in your apartment block or the person who lives in your street or someone who's picking up kids at your kid's school who are struggling. Maybe they don't have money to get their car registered. Maybe they're, they're working through something really difficult in their family life. Well, there's a, or is there a, there's a health issue that they're going through. And it's saying, hey, can we help with that? Can we make you some food? Can we give you an Uber voucher? Can we help? It's, it's stepping into need where it arises. The answer isn't just to do a program. It's, and already, this is both these things, they're happening in the life of our church. This is a church that cares deeply about sharing the gospel with people and loving those where we can. But then beyond that, we also want to be a church that, where we can, can actually pull together some resources and energy and do things together that we couldn't do on our own. And that's why we're doing Alpha, because Alpha is a chance to to come together to help people be introduced to the gospel in a really intentional, specific way. That's why we're doing it, because we do believe that all we have to offer at Alpha tomorrow and the next six weeks is the message of salvation, and if people get that, it's the best thing that could ever happen to them. That's why we're running in. That's why I want people to invite. That's why I want you to come if you're exploring faith tomorrow night at the church. But also to be a growing healthy church, it, it, where hands and feet stopped happening during COVID because we couldn't meet in the building up there and also because the government gave everyone heaps of money so people didn't need free groceries anymore for a time. But also because we've struggled to get volunteers for that. And I think it's okay for this time and place in our church's life as we've moved down to the school and been kind of rebuilding a bit as a church to have not had anything kind of formal to address the needs around us. But I don't think it would be a mark of health if for the next five, ten years we just had no tangible impact in the people who are living in the streets around where we meet. That we want to be a church that finds intentional ways to be a light and to love this world. And so reading this passage has just encouraged me to be praying about this more, to be asking God, like, what would it look like for us as a church to take the next step in being committed to justice and mercy? Whether it's restarting hands and feet as we did it before, whether it's something completely different. But the main thing to get anything happening, happening that's going to require a few of us is a few of us. It's going to require volunteers and energy. And, and so I just want to encourage you, if that's something that's maybe on your heart, I'd love you to let us know. You could write on the white card and say, look, I'd love something to happen where we could connect with people around us in some way, shape or form and and show Jesus' love. We'd love to hear from you if if we've got people that's in your heart. And even if there's maybe some specifics or if you feel like you've got time, you're in a stage of life where maybe you're not working that much but your kids are in school or you're retired or you're studying and you've got some time, we'd love to hear from you. But at the very least, I encourage you to be praying for it to be praying that God will be opening our eyes to the opportunity, that we would be a healthy church that is committed to the gospel and committed to justice. How about we pray for that now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're invited into something amazing. We thank you that we're invited to join with you, that you've given us, in fact, something so that we can experience, that so we know that you love us. We've got to hear that however we've heard, whoever shared that with us or whoever told that to us, that we can know that you love us and have sent your son to die, that we may have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And we just thank you that that's something we can pass on freely, that we don't have to hoard it, that we can pass it on frequently and to anyone we come in contact with. And we just ask that we'd be people who are keen to do that, who just know what we're holding on to and know what we've got to offer to this deeply needy and broken world. We pray that even between now and tomorrow night that we might, some of us might be able to invite and to, and to share and that tomorrow night and these coming weeks of Alpha people would hear the reality of the saving message of the gospel. But also, Lord, we just want to just pray that we wouldn't be a people who are blind to the many, many needs around us, where, where injustice is happening, where people are marginalized, where people are overlooked or treated badly, where people don't have some of the things that, that some of us have in terms of the things that make life smooth or easy, and that we would be just generously, generously, I guess, looking to, to share what we have with others, to share of our time, to share of our homes, to share of our money, share of our skills. That if City Light were to To wrap up for some reason that you'd be missed you'd be missed because people know that this would be a group of people who are committed to real love in whatever way that we can so i pray you'd help us do this in jesus name amen